Okay, hello and welcome to the third in a row Facebook Lives. Uh, I'm a little bit later than I was the last two days because I realized that actually coming online every day and talking um, is a bit of a commitment. It's not a huge commitment, but um, I've got to make sure I've got something to say to you. Um, what I'm doing um, is, uh, if you look at the previous two Facebook Lives, is I'm just looking briefly at each week of Atheism for Lent kind of giving a little bit of a lay of the land, a look at the terrain. Uh, some of you will be doing Atheism for Lent with me, and that means you'll get a 40 reflections. You'll, sometimes there'll be readings. It'll be something to listen to, something to uh, read. It might be music. It might be art. Um, and it takes you on a journey of uh, decentering over the Lenten period. And the primary idea is to explore the theological dimension of atheism, to explore how theism and atheism uh, are interestingly intertwined and enrich each other uh, in, in unexpected ways, and also to enrich and deepen our understanding of this word God, uh, to deepen it to such an extent that it is even freed from the usual dichotomies that exist between, say, theism and atheism. So the two days ago, I talked a little bit about, you know, the first week will be getting in the right frame of mind and exploring some of the kind of the, the fundamental point of atheism for Lent. Uh, the second week then is where we uh, will have lots of reflections that are uh, revolving around the type of critique of um, God that we all are pretty aware of, the very traditional uh, critiques. And we're going to listen to them and engage with them critically, um, self-critically. But the third week is where it gets really interesting. So what I'm going to talk about now is the week that kind of where I think it, the rubber hits the road and we really start getting traction. And it's because it's a week where we look at mysticism, uh, the golden age of mysticism. Because uh, the mystics are the first thinkers to really appreciate and explore the play between theology and atheism or theism and atheism. Um, they are the first, you know, first rate thinkers that really systematically begin to reflect on the theological dimension of atheism. And while mysticism today um, is a, kind of feels anachronistic, uh, there's an important uh, contribution that the, the mystics made to, to our world. Um, and it's funny to think about it at first, because what I want to say is that in a sense, they, they uh, preempted many of the discussions and the insights that we see in contemporary science and the contemporary academy. So like for, for the mystics, uh, there is something that is unknown. Now, not unknown by contingent factors just because we haven't learned enough or we don't have the right uh, instruments to measure something, but there is a dimension that is necessarily unknowable, um, which is the source of everything, that which brings everything into being and sustains everything. And this is unknowable by necessity because this reality uh, precedes subject and object distinction. So for human beings, as creatures of language, we break the world up into subject and object. And the source of everything, in a sense, precedes 
these distinctions that we that we necessarily need in order to think. And so every time we try to think of this this reality that's at the core of everything, we will always miss it. They have very sophisticated ways of exploring that. We're going to look at Anselm, for example, this and on this third week, and uh, his um, his writings, which are incredibly beautiful on this on this subject. But what basically the mystics are saying is that that there is an unknowability that is central to existence, but that that unknowability generates truth. It generates unconcealment, right? So they say, right, there's something that we cannot know, but that it's not that we then therefore don't know it and walk away from it. And as Wittgenstein said, we just pass over it in silence. Forget it. We can't talk about it. The mystics go the other direction. They go, oh, no, this is the one thing we really need to think through and to reflect on and to wrestle with and tarry with um, because it generates so much. So already, you know, you have the complication of an idea, right? There's stuff that you can know, so why don't we, you know, stick with that stuff? And there's stuff we cannot know, so just leave that to the side. And they're like, no, 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 no. The unknown, the unknown is something that we need to engage with and we need to protect it from the crustaceans of our ideas so that we don't kind of like paint it with gold and make it into a calf to worship. We have to somehow protect that unknowability. Now, why this is important for contemporary science is because although this can sound strange, actually we see these debates taken on and developed in contemporary mathematics, in uh, uh, quantum mechanics, in, um, in modern art, uh, in phenomenology, in existentialism, in psychoanalysis, right? All of these disciplines, to mention just a few, are all having to tarry with an inherent unknowability at the core of the discipline. So, for example, in mathematics, you have this notion of the uh, inc incompleteness theorem, the idea that mathematics uh, cannot close its own system. It cannot justify its own foundations, that there is an inherent incompleteness to mathematics. However, and this is why it's similar to the mystics, this is not something that you ignore and just walk away from. There are very precise mathematical formulas that explore this inherent incompleteness. And it's actually generative of uh, contemporary mathematics. It's a generative unknowing. Or in, in contemporary physics, you have, of course, in the 20th century, the development of experiments that um, bring us into the heart of wave-particle duality, of the quantum level of superpositioning, of the idea that subatomic particles have probable positioning. Uh, in other words, you cannot say exactly where a particle is, um, that the that, that unknowing is inherently part of the enterprise of physics. But again, it's not an unknowing that comes from a mere lack of understanding. It's actually an unknowing that is hard-baked into reality itself, that, that has come to be known not through ignorance, but through incredibly advanced uh, experimental procedures. 
uh, and also is incredibly productive. Not simply productive in terms of uh, the development of scientific theory, but also in terms of technology, you know, the practice of science uh, in the development of quantum computers, for example. Or in psychoanalysis, you have the unconscious, and the unconscious is, by definition, the unknowable. It is the crack in subjectivity and being that cannot be rendered known or understandable, but it's something that generates so much activity in our lives. And uh, in psychoanalysis is a theory or involves a theory of trying to understand how we work with this inherently unknown uh, and unknowable reality. Uh, what else did I mention? Phenomenology and whatever. So existentialism, all of these disciplines have taken on these early reflections from the mystics and developed them and deepened them. But you, you go back to someone like Meister Eckhart or Pseudo-Dionysius or Anselm, and these are thinkers who are working with these ideas. Um, so for a mystic, take the example of love, right? Uh, what we all, we can say we believe in love, but you know, for some of us, we may we may think that it's a, you know it's a, it's a real thing. It's a it's a reflection of some reality in in being itself, uh, or somebody else might think, well, it's a biological dimension. It's a neurological reality. It's an epiphenomenon. There's lots of ways of trying to understand what love is, but in a sense, the unknowing um, is what generates uh, so many disciplines. That, that reveal the world. So in, in ancient Greece, there's a notion of truth. The word truth means unconcealment. Um, and Heidegger makes a big deal of this. But that truth is really where the world reveals itself in some way. So truth, truth is like a turning on of the light. And academic disciplines are various ways in which the world unconceals itself. So physics is a way that the world reveals itself to us. Uh, mathematics is, a, is a, a way the world reveals itself to us. But so is literature, so is poetry, so is philosophy. Uh, these are different ways in which um, the world is unconcealed. And sometimes they're very compatible and sometimes they're very, very different. But the university, in a sense, is an institution with all of these classrooms designed to unconceal the world in, in a variety of ways. And that's why we go to university. You know, we go to university, well, <laughs> ideally, you know, to, to, to unconceal the world in a variety of, of, of ways. And the idea is um, that the unknowing of something, say love, you know, we don't know what it is, uh, but of course, that's only, you know, we can come to a real understanding, but you know, at first kind of we look at this, but we don't understand that it. it generates uh, all of these disciplines, not just poetry. So you could say, well, the poets reflect on the unknowability of love and they unconceal the world in their poetry and great writers and great artists, but also um, kind of biologists. Uh, are driven by the same question and neurologists and so they are unconcealing the world by the through the same kind of unknowing so this is why for the mystics the unknowable is not unnameable but omni-nameable 
it, it generates an excess of names and ideas. But we have to uh, always have an atheism to our theisms, our, our affirmations of ultimate reality have to be set aside also our sense of, no, but that's not it. That's not it. Every time we name this unknowing, we're missing it. So for the mystics, nomination, which means naming, uh, has to be accompanied by a denomination, which is denaming. And I like the way churches are called denominations, like the, the spaces that should protect us from naming. The, the, the places where the, the world and our understanding is denominated. Now, for someone like Pseudo-Dionysius, one of the earliest mystical writers, uh, this process of naming, which is called the cataphatic tradition, and unnaming, which is called the apophatic tradition, this process of back and forth um, is, first of all, a very productive process, but then also gives way to something beyond both. Uh, which I think he called the, the road of the eminence. I actually wrote my PhD partly on mysticism, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, this, uh, this space of praise, this space where beyond affirmation and negation, we, we uh, attune ourselves to the beauty of the world. We attune ourselves in gratitude to what is around us. And that this is the ultimate expression of, of faith, so faith is, theology becomes theopoetics, or it becomes kind of a, a type of hymn, a, ty a type of way of praising, a type of way of, of trying to find a language that has breadth and depth and openness, and also that uh, sensitizes us, that humanizes us, that, um, because, you know, in... in we all can become so hardened. I mean, everyday life is difficult and it's very easy for us when someone mistreats us to mistreat them or to turn that hatred in on ourselves or throw it out to somebody else. Uh, we repay hatred with hatred and violence with violence. And the, the, the tougher, the more wounds we have, uh, often the more barriers we build. So theology becomes a discipline that's primarily designed to sensitize us to, to the infinite call of the other, uh, to the depth and the density of life. And that's important for the mystics because um, it's so easy for us to uh, become simply a, a cog in the machine and to be reduced to a one-dimensional type of life. It's a, it's a threat to all of us. Um, so theology, as I said, becomes a theopoetics. And so atheism and theism start to intertwine. You say God is love, but you say, well, not as I understand it. Or like in the first line of the, the Lord's Prayer, it says, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, and then the second line is, hallowed be thy name. So the first, the first line nominates it names. It says in names, there's God and Father. But then the second line denominates because it says hallowed is thy name, which means holy and holy means set apart and set apart means different from what you think, right? So the realm of the holy is the realm of the numinous, which is a realm that causes awe and causes um, kind of fear and trembling, which is what awe is, fear and trembling. But uh, 
it's, 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 it's different. It's stuff that we cannot grasp and cannot know. So you have this interplay, you know, between nominating and denominating. Uh, one of the great contemporary philosophers of mysticism is uh, Jean-Luc Marion. Jean-Luc Marion, who wrote um, a very difficult and very good book called God Without Being, uh, explores this idea of uh, we're saturated in, in something that is inherently unknowable. And so our theologies are almost like buildings that we build in praise of this unknowability. And the, you know, the, some architects are better than others. So some architects create better buildings than others. Uh, some individuals have, you know, a better education and they're better with words so they can create a nicer architectural structure with their words. But, but the architectural structure doesn't get closer to the truth. It's just a more beautiful architectural structure. Um, and that's kind of what, what the mystics are kind of getting at. So mysticism, and we'll, we'll get into depth on this. You'll have a lot of reflections of the mystics. You'll see the beauty of their language, the beauty of their words. But they are, and, and of course you could say, oh, hold on, the problem with the mystics is, okay, they bring in atheism, so they're always denominating what they name and saying it's not like that, it's not like that. But then you go, but they've got an ultimate affirmation beneath all their atheisms. Because within the mystical tradition, um, there's a revealing of atheism as regional, which means atheism is always the rejection of atheism, which is also regional. So there are lots of atheisms. You don't talk about atheism. You can talk about there's Buddhist atheism, Jewish atheism, Christian atheism, Catholic and Protestant atheisms. Um, what kind of, so, you know, if someone says they're a theist, you can ask, what kind of God do you believe in? In the same way, if someone says they're an atheist, you can say, well, what, what God do you not believe in? Um, so there's a certain kind of regional aspect, which is actually very, very good and very productive. So the mystics have this, but then you go, so they've got an ultimate underlying affirmation. But you could also say no, because they don't think it ever stops. As soon as you say there's an underlying affirmation, the mystics might say, well, no, but then you have to question that, because that becomes a golden calf. So there is this, this play. Now, as we develop through atheism for Lent, we'll see how mysticism is kind of usurped and deepened and transformed in, in other thinking. Uh, but you know, that comes after the mystics because the golden age of mysticism is way back in the past. Uh, but, but it's important to, and it's always valuable and I would say always, uh, rewarding to dip, to delve deeply into them because as I say, so much of what they're wrestling with can be seen in contemporary sciences and in the contemporary academy and actually, um, going back to the mystics can enrich many of those conversations and can enrich many and can create really, really impressive insights uh, into those things. So then for the mystics, the un, the, there is something that is fundamentally unknowable and they give that the word God, three-letter word God, this unknowability that you don't just let go, that actually generates unconcealment, it generates truth. The, the, the constant revolving around and the constant failure to name this is a productive failure. It's a successful failure. Um, it, and, and it's through that that we create beautiful languages and also beautiful sciences 
that give us ways of unconcealing the world and also sensitizing us to the depth and density of the world and help develop care and concern for the world. And it is in that care and concern for the world and it's in that enjoyment of the world that we give praise, that, we, that our lives become a hymn um, that, uh, and, and, and that we truly enter into a type of joy and um, fullness of life. All right, there you go. It's getting dark here. Um, I'm just going to look to see if you've got any questions or comments very quickly. And then I'll I say there's lots of comments. So if I don't get to yours, um, I am just flicking down to see if anything pops out at me. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, um, Mike uh, Powell. Hey, hi, Mike. How's it going? He says, um, "How would the mystics engage with the four views of God that you once spelled out um, in an older Facebook live and on the Robcast?" Yeah, so there was a uh, on the Robcast. I did a series on God, and in one of the one of the episodes, I talked about kind of broadly four different ways that you can understand this notion of the word God. One is God as a being, a super being, a being kind of like a a, a bigger, better version of ourselves. Um, God is a hyper being, which is God is that which transcends being. Um, the third God is the ground of being, and the fourth God as event. And um, I won't go into what they all mean, but go check out the Robcast or the previous uh, Facebook Lives, or I've got lectures on it online. But uh, broadly speaking, Mike, the, the mystics are the ones who really embrace the idea of God as a hyper being. Um, so they're the first ones to break out of this notion that God is basically thinkable. God is a concept that, that we can grasp and that we can know. So that word refers to an assertion of something that we can know. And the, the first critique of that, um, I mean, the, there's atheistic critiques of like God as a being, but the first kind of like deep systematic critique, I think could be said to be the mystics. Were, uh, were, and in, in the way I've just described. Um, that's why I'm saying that actually I think mysticism is, not, is acronistic now, anachronistic, because uh, things, things have developed, and um, uh, we'll go into that in more detail in the future. So the existential theologians have this notion of God as ground of being, and that's different from God as hyper-being. But they are they're intertwined. Um, in, in interesting ways. If you want to read good mystics, Pseudo-Dionysius is, is like really the first. And, uh, you know, he wrote a book called, let me see if I can remember it, Mystical Theology, and it's very short. Uh, uh, Seth uh, quotes Bart. Seth, I think, yeah, I, I remember you. You're very good at putting fantastic, every time I do a Facebook Live, if Seth's listening, he's able to pick really good quotes <laughs> that, um, from people a lot smarter than me. So let's see if you're uh, still on form. I think that's you, Seth. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, from Bart on love, to quote, to try to write love is to confront the muck of language, that region of hysteria where language is both too much and too little, excessive and impoverished. That's beautiful. I, early Bart is such a good writer. I don't, I don't know if that's Early Bart, but I like Early Bart, even though I'm not a Bardian. So let me read that again. 
um, on love. To try to write love is to confront the muck of language. What a lovely way of saying it. <laughs> that region of hysteria where language is both too much and too little, excessive and impoverished. That's it. You know, you've, you've come up trumps again. It's a beautiful quote that the mystics would, I think a lot of the mystics like Eckhart would, would echo, that he's saying that language in its very impossibility, the, the impossibility to speak something is what generates um, such beautiful speech. I have an example, I think I've told you this before, but um, when I was a child, I didn't speak for years. I mean, I don't know what age I was before I started speaking, but they got speech therapists in, they couldn't work it out. Now, the story in my family, I don't know if this is true, but is a speech therapist came around and she spent some time with our family and she noticed that my sister would always get me things. So if I pointed at something, she would get me it. Uh, and the speech therapist said, listen, you've got to tell your daughter to stop doing that. And so my sister, Barbara, um, she, she stopped doing that. She was told, mom said, stop getting things for Pete, right? And she did. And so very quickly, I had to start speaking. <laughs> so the impossibility of getting cookies made me have to say cookie, right? So it was the very impossibility that generated uh, creativity and generated language. So that's just a little anecdote but um but there's a real truth to that that the impossibility of getting something is is what generates a lot of a lot of human activity um i feel like i'm getting darker and darker i'm about to disappear entirely um uh so that's good phil britain says i'd love to, to hear you in science and mike have a conversation about mysticism and quantum theory we actually had a brief conversation about that once um there's a liturgist uh, episode where as before I really knew much about the liturgists and I was on it and yeah Mike and I talked about the philosophy of nothingness and the science of nothingness so yeah check it out um, James Prescott says but language can also be liberating but yeah no that's exactly the point of the mystics is and this connects them with say psychoanalysis and, and physics and contemporary mathematics is the impossibility is not a, a failure it's a success or it is a failure and it's the failure that generates. So it's a generative failure. Um, the negativity positivizes and philosophy, you can talk about the, the negativity is, is, a, is a positivizing force. So that's exactly why language is so powerful. It's powerful because it's um, a chain of signifiers that, that never gets what in psychoanalysis is called the master signifier. It never, it never lands meaning. Language is like a dictionary. Right, every word just goes to another word and goes to another word. There's no master word that unlocks everything. Um, so it's the failure of language to kneel down something that actually uh, is what uh, makes it uh, reveal so much. All right. Well, listen. Before I disappear into complete darkness, I feel like I should tell you a horror story. I should uh, put my mobile phone under with have a light. <laughs> um, I'll uh, I'll I'll leave you. But uh, tomorrow I'm going to pop in again and um, I'll, I'll be doing that for the next, uh, the next few days. So thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Take care of yourselves and have a, have a lovely evening wherever you are.